Well, good afternoon and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, I'm Judge Toby Hampson. To my right is Judge Julie Flood. Uh, to my left is Judge Allison Riggs. Uh, we have uh, two cases on the calendar for oral argument this afternoon. Um, looks like uh, we're ready for State v. Sparrow, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and if you're ready, we'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. May it please the court, my name is Kelly Minette and I represent Mr. Spera in his appeal to this court. Before I begin, I would like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. When the state endeavors to convict a five foot nine inch white man with hair as being the described five foot tall bald black man who robbed two people, identity of the perpetrator of the crime is the whole case. So when the state conducted an out-of-court photographic show-up with the victim of the robbery, failed to disclose that in discovery for a year prior to trial, and then allowed the victim, the first witness in the trial, to repeatedly identify Mr. Spera as that five-foot-tall, bald black man, there was no way for Mr. Spera to receive a fair trial. Our cases say that when incompetent evidence comes before a jury, typically a curative instruction eradicates the potential prejudice and uh, the denial of a motion for a mistrial is not an abuse of discretion. However, the courts consistently lay out um, a set of exceptions um, for when a curative instruction is just insufficient uh, to provide a fair trial to the defendant. The first factor that the courts look at is the speed of the curative instruction being given. Uh, we see in cases in which there was no abuse of discretion in denying a motion for mistrial repeatedly references to the immediacy of the curative instruction. Um, in Thomas, in King, in McCraw, all cases cited in the state's brief, uh, the courts relied on how quickly the curative instruction was given. That's in contrast to Hunt, um, and uh, Cho 8, in which the, the jury sat overnight with that information before the curative instruction was given. And so what, what happened here, though, was um, that the issue didn't fully materialize until this witness was on cross-examination, right? And, and then the trial court kind of conducted a voir dire on what was initially kind of framed as, as a discovery violation, had, had the state properly disclosed uh, the use of this photo and the identification process. Correct. So um, the witness testified fully on direct um, and during cross-examination it came out that about a year prior to trial the, the prosecutor had met with the witness um, and done, shown him a photograph and this was the only identification that had been done pre-trial and the witness said yes that's, that's the guy who robbed me. The fact that that had happened was never disclosed to the defense. So when the jury was first sent out, there was discussion about how, had that been disclosed, there would have been a pretrial motion regarding the suppression of that identification um, and evaluating whether or not any in-court identification would be proper after that suggestive lineup that was done. Um, this voir dire process, uh, along with a lunch break and arguments of counsel, ultimately took a total of four hours before the jury was ever brought back into the courtroom going to the speed of which the correction occurs. And so that witness had testified for approximately an hour. The jury was sent out, and then they were brought back in um, after that four-hour break for them 
uh, and given a curative instruction at that point. While there was discussion of the discovery violation, it really went to the availability of um, the uh, use of a motion to suppress pretrial to prevent exactly what happened here, which is the, this happening in a way that the jury is just given from the very beginning uh, this identification all the way through the direct testimony. How does the fact that there was another witness IDing Mr. Spera, Ms. Tarleton, and I, as I understand it, no challenge to the competency of that evidence, mm -hmm. how does that factor into your analysis of the adequacy of the um, curative instruction? So in this particular circumstance, uh, Ms. Tarleton was a co-defendant in the case. Um, the testimony that she gave was after she received a, uh, a plea. She pled to two counts of attempted common law robbery where she faced anywhere from supervised probation to incarceration, and they were waiting to sentence her until after this trial. So she was an incredibly interested witness. Um, and in fact, uh, the judge read the standard credibility um, instruction the interested witness instruction, um, telling the jury to take into account the interests that the witness has, and the accomplice witness instruction, which cautions the jury to examine the testimony with great care or caution in deciding whether or not to believe it. So when you remove the identification that the victim gave repeatedly in that first set of testimony, the only thread connecting Mr. Spera to that five-foot-tall bald black man is the testimony of an incredibly interested witness. And this is actually addressed in Aldridge. Aldridge was a case in which um, the, uh, the defendant was charged with non-support of a child, um, and the court had said it was, it was inappropriate for the prosecutrix to reference the uh, non-access to her husband during the time of conception. Um, she did, in fact, reference it, um, but in that particular case, they talked about how that same evidence came from some other witnesses, the, the non-access, but the court recognized that it was far more prob probative coming from the prosecutrix, and that that made a, a, a difference in that case and in the, in the potential outcome of that case. We have the same thing here. The testimony of the victim, um, that that person who robbed him was the defendant, especially considering the vast difference in description, in initial description to Mr. Sparrow's description, uh, that is far more probative than anything Ms. Tarleton had to say. Another thing that the courts look at uh, in assessing um, whether or not a curative instruction is sufficient is how intermingled uh, the competent evidence is with the incompetent evidence. Um, and I, I like the Heinz and Hauser sort of uh, comparison here. Heinz is a case where the um, submission of a bunch of documentary exhibits were done at the end of the state's case. And at some point after the jury had been examining them for some time, it was discovered that intermingled with the admitted exhibits um, were some handwritten notes of the prosecutor um, and uh, some typed statements of the prosecutor. Um, the handwritten notes included some hearsay statements that implicated the co-defendants, one of the co-defendants' criminal backgrounds, and, um, and some other otherwise inadmissible information. Um, and the court in that case conducted a pretty thorough inquiry with the jury and instructed them to disregard all of that information. Um, but what, what the court relied on in that analysis is that it was so intermingled, it was, it was almost impossible for a juror to try and section that out. Um, and, and here, the, the, the trial court 
sort of made no, did not sort of, uh, sort of poll the jury as to, as to whether they could disregard the There was no polling of the jury. That is accurate. And is, is, is it your contention that the, that the content of the curative instruction, I understand your argument that the curative instruction generally was insufficient here, but do you, are you making any argument as to the actual content of the curative instruction not being sufficient enough to, to cure any, any defect here? You move me right to my next point. <laughs> that is the other thing that the courts take into account is how sufficient the curative instruction is um, in order to identify the evidence that is not supposed to be considered by the jury. And in this case, the curative instruction was uh, a very, very short, for the record, the motion to suppress the identification of the defendant is granted. I am instructing ladies and gentlemen of the jury that you are to disregard totally and give no weight to the last witness's identification of the defendant, that being Mr. Perry. Is that understood? You are to strike it entirely. And from this, where the jury had left off was where the information about the out-of-court identification had just been elicited on cross-examination. And so I question, reading this, does it apply to that identification? Does it apply to the multiple identifications made in court? Does it apply to every other line where the witness referred to the person who robbed him as Mr. Sparrow or him? Um, and so the, the instruction that was given in this case did not address the complexity of the interwovenness of the incompetent evidence with the competent evidence. And so all three of these factors here uh, existed in this case to lay a foundation of the entire case where the whole defense, the wrongful identification, had sort of already been overcome by the, by the repeated, he did this, Mr. Sparrow did this, Mr. Sparrow had a hammer, Mr. Sparrow did these things. Uh, when in actuality, according to the judge's ruling, the testimony should have been, the person who robbed me did this. And then all that the jury should have been presented with was a testimony of that interested witness, and they should have weighed that. And so um, the other aspect of this that I think should be considered um, is the fact that the courts have noted um, the prosecutor's lack of involvement in assessing abuse of discretion. For example, in McNeil, um, a witness kind of out of the blue challenged the defendant to testify. Um, and part of that analysis was that the prosecutor had played no role in eliciting that. That's not true here. The prosecutor failed to disclose this prior identification that would have allowed for this whole issue to be dealt with pretrial. And so we do have the direct involvement of the state in creating the problem here. And I think that is something that the courts indicate can be taken into consideration. And so, um, if there are no further questions about this issue, I'm prepared to move on. Well, uh, l let me ask you a little bit about remedy on, on, on this issue. <laughs> if in, if in um, is, is the remedy here a new trial, if in fact a, a mistrial should have been granted in this case? Yes. The pr appropriate remedy in this case would be a new trial for Mr. Spera, and at that point, uh, the jury would be given the appropriate information about the identity and can weigh that appropriately without the taint of the um, endless identification of Mr. P Mr. Perry. Moving on uh, to the second issue in the case, um, the insufficiency of uh, the intent to permanently deprive. Um, 
In this case, there was absolutely no evidence of an intention to permanently deprive. Uh, and I want to start by talking about sort of the last case that came in. Um, the state, in their uh, memorandum of additional authority, cited Carswell, um, in, in which there was an endless discussion of the difference between the elements of a taking and an asportation uh, for a larceny conviction. And I think um, the focus on this particular case is helpful as it sort of goes along with sort of the, the failure of the state in their brief to recognize a distinction between these elements. Um, the state urges this court that a completed taking gives rise to an inference of an intent to permanently deprive, but that's not accurate. These are distinct and separate elements. Uh, and if we call a completed taking enough, then we are functionally eliminating the burden on the state to, to bring forth evidence of an intent to permanently deprive. Um, and so where we have not just a return of the property, but a direct return of the property, the keys went into the victim's hands. He was escorted to the vehicle and then, quote, sent on his way. And in fact, in cross-examination, the victim referred to this as a joyride. This, the truck in this matter was taken for a temporary purpose of a joyride. But for purposes of the motion to dismiss, we, don't, we consider the evidence in the, in the light most favorable to the state. We don't factor in defendants or the, yeah, we don't factor in the defendant's evidence unless it's favorable to the state. Um, you know, it's one of the one, maybe the one time in, in where, where we do that. So, so here, why could the jury not take into account the, the fact that on the facts of this case, this was in the context of, of what otherwise was an armed robbery, um, you know, and, and focusing on the intent to, to take the property at the, at the time it was actually taken, whether or not it was returned. Is that not some, some evidence that there was an intent to take this property and permanently deprive the victim of the property? So what I'm hearing Your Honor suggest is that because the property was taken by force, there's an inference of an intent to deprive permanently. Well, I think the question is more just how, why could a jury not infer from the totality of the circumstances in this case that there was an initial intent to deprive permanently? So part of the totality of the circumstances of this case is the return of the property. Um, that is part of the totality. And um, additionally, there are facts uh, that, that I think indicate that there wasn't an intent to deprive uh, permanently when this happened. But isn't that more of a jury argument? Not when we're talking about whether or not there's any evidence to give rise to an inference. And so where what we have here do you concede that the trial court told the jury that it could convict mr spera only if it found intent of permanent deprivation yes i agree with that um so that goes towards the third issue in the case the instructional issue which definitely overlaps um and the, the trial court did properly instruct that there needed to be an intent to permanently deprive uh, but what watts says um is that simply telling them that, that a, an intention to permanently deprive is not enough that we need to be specific where there's evidence of a temporary taking. They need to be told that a temporary taking alone is not enough. Do you think that description in Watts is more than dicta? Because I read it as should language rather than must language and dicta because the Watts court expressly said we're not reaching this issue. Is there an argument to the contrary? I mean, there could be an argument made that it's dicta. However, I think it is entirely in line with, with 
sort of where we are in this case, which is that, that we're talking about whether um, evidence of other elements overlaps with evidence in, of, of this element. Um, and we have to be careful not to erode, and this is what Watts talks about, is the potential erosion of this distinct element of a mental state. And so where we have even the state in this matter discussing the fact that a completed taking should be sufficient evidence, um, I think that the jury needs more complete information where there is significant evidence of a temporary deprivation of the property, that temporary deprivation is not the same thing as an intent to permanently deprive. And that's what Watts says um, and, uh, in the language of Watts, and it is what I believe was necessary here if this case were to go to the jury, and if we were to leave this to the jury. So was that, um, I, I know we've jumped to the instructional issue, but um, was that an instruction that was requested at trial? It was not. So that it would be a plain error analysis in this matter. Um, moving back, Judge Hampson, uh, to something that you said um, about uh, you know, robbery and the, the force being a factor here, um, I do think it is interesting that in Watts they specifically say, not just in larceny cases, but in robbery and larceny cases, where there is evidence of a temporary taking. Um, and so I would point out that the, that the case law seems to contemplate that you know, taking something by force is not by itself sufficient to give rise to this, to this uh, element of intent to permanently deprive. I will also point out um, on the totality of the circumstances that um, the, there was testimony that the second victim in the case, the one who did not testify, Zach Pfeiffer, I think his name was, was a known drug dealer, only he was a weed dealer. The people who came in the room um, demanded powder. There appeared to be some sort of confusion about what type of drug he dealt. Um, and so there was testimony that, that it seemed from their, from their words that they were coming in to try and take the powder they believed was going to be on Mr. Pfeiffer. Um, and so they then, um, according to Mr. Perry, the victim, um, they then took Mr. Perry's wallet, looked through it, handed it back, happened to grab his cell phone and his keys, and then 25 to 30 minutes later, came back, handed him his keys, walked him to the car, and, quote, sent him on his way. And so that is an additional circumstance here that um, trends towards no intention of permanent deprivation, uh, where this, the original intention of this robbery was going to go unfulfilled, uh, and so there was sort of a transfer of what are we going to do here. Uh, and so there's no specific information that would give us an inference of an intention to permanently deprive. Uh, in almost all of the cases cited on, on both briefs, we see abandonment of the proper property, and repeatedly the courts have said, because that shows a disregard for the ownership interest, that gives rise to an inference of intent to permanently deprive. We also see some cases in which there's an interruption that occurs after the taking is completed, um, where the property may have been released uh, when, when you know, somebody was being caught in some way, shape, or form. We have none of that evidence here. What we have here is two people leaving with keys in the truck and coming back 25 minutes later and handing the keys over. But I think you can see that the evidence of intent is usually circumstantial. Yes. Right? I mean, there's rare is it that we have direct evidence of, of a person's intent in that, in that very moment in which we measure intent. We have to look at all the circumstances. Yes, that's absolutely correct. But I do think that is also why it's fairly persuasive that they had a stated intent when they came in the room of taking powder. 
Um, and so where we do have a stated intent, I think that is persuasive information for the court to take into account. So if there are no further issues, I would reserve. Yes. Uh, can I, one thing, putting aside your first issue and just mm -hmm. looking at this issue, if we agree with you that the larceny charge should have been dismissed for insufficient evidence of the intent to permanently deprive, is the remedy a new trial or a remand for entry of judgment on uh, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, the lesser included charges? So, um, the, this is, un, unauthorized use of a motor, uh, motor vehicle is not actually a lesser included in this scenario because the indictment was felony larceny over $1,000, uh, which is how it only became misdemeanor larceny. Um, at the close of the state's evidence, the state, the uh, trial court said there had been no evidence of the value of the property and reduced it to misdemeanor larceny. But unauthorized use is only a lesser included if the original charge is larceny of a motor vehicle. So in this case, that judgment would simply be vacated. He was sentenced separately, um, so it would just be completely vacated. Okay. If there are no further questions, I reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank, Thank you. you. You've got about nine minutes, 20 seconds for rebuttal. So we'll hear from the state. May it please the court. Good afternoon. My name is Andrew Hayes and I'm an assistant attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice. I'm here today representing represent the state in this matter. There are three issues uh, in this case and I will just take them in turn. Issue one is whether the trial court abuses discretion when it denied defendant's motion for a mistrial. A mistrial is a, is a drastic remedy and is warranted only when it is impossible to attain a fair and impartial verdict. Uh, a judge must declare a mistrial when there occurs in the trial an error or procedural defect resulting in a substantial and irreparable prejudice to defend this case. And that determination lies within the sound discretion of the trial court. And so should here, the, I think the, the, the crux of the question is, 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 did it reach that level of of prejudice, right? I mean, the trial court itself determined there, there was an error in the procedure and the failure uh, to disclose the, 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 the identification. Um, so, so how in the context of this, of, of this particular case where you, you do sort of have this confused testimony as to, to which uh, alleged perpetrator it was, uh, where you, you have this discovery violation where there, there does, you know, that it could have been cured with a motion to suppress had it been disclosed earlier, um, and, and relatively extensive testimony focused on the identity uh, of, of the perpetrators. Um, how, is, how is, in the context of a trial, how is that not, not, does that not rise to the level of sufficient prejudice here? So I think, well, first of all, with the direct testimony, the court did give a jury instruction to disregard the testimony. And um, when a jury is instructed to disregard, so, so what testimony did the, the, the specifically was the trial court speaking to with that curative instruction? Uh, to disregard and give no weight to Mr. Perry's identification of defendant as the person who robbed him. But there were there were multiple instances of that identification. Is it your is it the state's uh, position that 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 was simply kind of a global uh, curative instruction that at every instance in which. 
That is how I understood the instruction, that the jury was to disregard any point in time that Mr. Perry was to identify defendant sitting there as the person who robbed him. Um, with that instruction, it does it. There's no evidence in the record that that the juries um, use that information to reach their verdict. And um, as Judge Riggs pointed out in Durham Vadir, um, the judge knew that a co-defendant, Miss Hannah Tarlington, was going to testify. She testified that she had been she had had an intimate relationship with defendant. She knew him well and pointed him out, not only there in court, but also prior with Officer May. Officer May testified that Hannah also told him that defendant was there that day. So I think it's reasonable for the jury to use Hannah Tarlington's testimony to ID defendant as the person who was there and then use Mr. Perry's testimony for everything else, the weapon, what happened and all that stuff. So I think, you know, the mistrial standard so high, I think uh, with the curative instruction in Ms. Tarlington's testimony, we can't, you can't reach the level where there is substantial and irreparable prejudice on the defendant in this case. As far as discovery violation, I would point to Mr. Painter, the defense attorney in this case, on page 91 of the transcript, said discovery is not an issue in this case. Well, I think he, he was speaking specifically to whether the, the actual photograph had been disclosed. Was, was, is that not right? And, and he was admitting, yes, we got the photograph that was, that was used by, by the ADA, but what we didn't get were any notes from that or any disclosure that, that it had in fact been used for purposes of, of identification. That, wasn't that the, the difference there? I think it was, I think if I remember right, Your Honor, that was, I think though, well, first of all, I'd say, I think defendants abandoned that, any discovery violation argument on appeal. I didn't see any case law supporting. Well, they won the discovery violation argument. Or, <laughs> or uh, so, I mean, and, and ultimately the judge at his discretion Granted the motion to suppress, uh, but denied the motion for a mistrial. Um, and I think in this case, based upon the, the circumstances in this case, that was an appropriate ruling. Um, if the court has no other questions on issue one, I'll move to issue two. Well, talk to talk to me a little bit about the, you know, the the actual content of the curative instruction. Was that in fact specific enough? Um, or, or sufficient enough to, to, cure, to cure the defect? I mean, uh, recognizing that we have this general rule that if you give a curative instruction, right. then, right. then you, you know. Right. Your Honor, I would argue, yes, he said for them to disregard and give no way to any testimony by Mr. Perry, Mr. Perry identifying defendant. If, if I, don't, I don't know what else court could have said other than, so to me I took that as every time he said Mr. Sparrow did this Mr. Sparrow did that that the, that the jury is to disregard that testimony um, and so I, I would say the curative instruction was sufficient it was proper there's no there's nothing in the record to show that the jury used Mr. Perry's ID and defendant as the person who robbed him to, to reach their verdict in this case. Well, but it, it, isn't it true though that it, it's rare that you actually have any direct insight into exactly what 
the jury relied upon in, in rendering its verdict. True. So it's so. And I don't think there was anything in the record that, that you know, showed it. Yeah. Showed it. In yeah. this case. But, you're, but the state's position is that notwithstanding all of that, because you do have this separate independent witness exactly. whose identification that is we not we don't true. reach the level where it reached the level of a mistrial. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. And so moving on to issue number two, it's whether the trial court erred when it denied defendant's motion to dismiss the larceny charge. So this court reviews motion to dismiss de novo. Uh, like your honor said, given the light most favorable to the state, and the state's given every inf reasonable inference from the evidence. So essentially, this court has determined whether there's substantial evidence as to every element, and um, once the trial court has determined that there's substantial evidence that will support the reasonable inference of defendant's guilt is to send to the jury. Um, defendant in this case was found guilty of misdemeanor larceny under 14-72A. Larceny is a taking away of personal property of another without their consent with the intent to permanently deprive uh, of the possession permanently. Um, the, the level of intent, it's usually, you, you, you're not gonna show intent through direct evidence. It's usually by circumstantial evidence. Uh, the, tent, the intent is determined at the time of the taking, and uh, there was substantial evidence to leave the jury a reasonable inference that at the time of the taking that, that the defendant intended to permanently deprive. I will point to the fact that they came in armed with a knife and a two-pound hammer, um, told to give all their possessions away, told to give the keys away. Mr. Why is that not part of part and parcel of the taking. I'm, I'm struggling to understand what independent of the taking evidence, what evidence apart from the taking and things that are part and parcel of the taking exist to support the larceny charge. Can you repeat that one time? I'm sorry. Well, so uh, I'm struggling with that. I think that the fact that they came in armed was part of the taking. And I, I'm not aware if you could point me to a case where the taking alone was sufficient to support uh, an inference of permanent intent to permanently deprive. Right. I, I, I'm looking for something besides the act of the taking itself. And, Your Honor, I, I heard uh, defense counsel say that I'm not saying that the taking equals intent to permanently deprive. I'm saying at the time of the taking, where we're looking at the circumstances, Mr. Perry said you don't have to do this. The defendant said tough luck. There was no discussion about, I can't wait to take this truck for a joyride, or I need to go to the store, or you owe me money, as in Watts. In Watts, there's a direct connection between, I'm taking this TV until you give me $150. There's a clear indication from the evidence that the only reason he took the TV was until he got his $150. So there, there was evidence of a temporary, the intent to temporarily deprive. Here, they went in, they took the keys, and they left. They asked Mr. Perry on direct, did you think they were coming back? His answer was no. I know he testified that, yeah, they came back from a joyride, but that was after the fact. At the time of the taking, he did not think that they were coming back. I don't think anybody else in that trailer thought they were coming back. And 
if you look at what happened in the trailer, all the documentation was either destroyed, smeared, crumpled. Why? Were they trying to uh, destroy evidence of who owned the truck? I don't know. Where's the roadside assistant kit? Did they try to sell that? Did the truck break down and so they decided they didn't want to keep it? Did they sell the roadside kit and then try to sell the truck and nobody wanted it so they brought it back? We don't know. But I would argue that when looking at the intent at the time of the taking, there is enough evidence there for the judge to send it to the jury to decide whether there was intent to permanently deprive. Well, so if your position is it, it, it's the time of the taking, what may or may not have been missing from the truck later wouldn't be known to anyone at the time of the taking. Yes, right? Your Honor. I agree. Yes. But again, we're focused on the intent of, of the defendant, what, not yes. necessarily what others would have would have thought. So True. we're looking at the yes, Your Honor. So which is kind of where I come back to. We need to look at the totality of the circumstances to try and d divine intent or divine right. whether it would be reasonable for a jury to infer. Right. That. I think if we if you look at Watts and what and how that court ruled in Watts, um, if there was some inference as to I can't wait to take this V8, uh, it had mods, it had exhaust on a joyride, or they say you stay here until we get back. Um, yeah, but that maybe counsel, we have a different. That I take your point, there was more evidence in Watt, but the burden is on the state, and if the quantum of evidence is lacking on intent, that, I'm right, the, aren't I, that that doesn't, you know, it's not on the defendant to come up with the evidence to prove a different intent, the burden's on the state to prove that, that necessary element of the crime. Right. And it, but intent is rarely by direct evidence. I think when you take in the totality of circumstances and the circumstantial evidence, how they acted, what they did and what they didn't say, that there's enough there that the trial court should have sent to the jury. I mean, other, I think otherwise are we going to require the defendants to say, I, I intend to permanently deprive you at the time of the taking. I think when looking at the totality of circumstances in this case, there's enough there, and the judge properly sent it to the jury for them to make the decision as to whether the intent element, uh, whether the defendant had the intent to permanently deprive in this case. Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, you, you, we as a court can sometimes struggle with in these cases is where to, where to draw that line between is there sufficient evidence to get to the jury and is there simply conflicting evidence, which you could argue, you know, reasonable minds could differ, and you argue about in front of the jury, and let the jury make make that decision. And so, I mean, how do you how do you articulate that that line between sufficient evidence and, and what is truly a jury question? I mean, I, I think looking at the totality of the situation here and how it went down, the 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 brutality, if you say, of the incident, what happened? They, they demanded the keys and everything on knife point and threat of harm. Um, and then when, when said you don't have to do this, they said tough luck. Well, so does that create a rule though that any time you have a taking with threat of physical violence that there is just a reasonable assumption that you, that the defendant, a defendant um, intended a permanent deprivation? Because that's what, on this line, that's what I'm worried 
we're being invited to create that kind of rule. So how do I avoid that kind of categorical rule that would relieve the state of its duty to prove intent? So I kind of look at Watts. I think if we had similar facts as to Watts, as to uh, different fact scenarios at the time of the taking, there was some type of discussion like that, then maybe we have the same result as Watts. But in this case, we don't have that. They came in, they took it, they left, and were gone. We don't have, and I mean, in Watts, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, they took the victim in a headlock. So there was kind of a threat. I think robbery was included in that case as well. But there was a discussion about the intent and what they, what the defendant in that case was going to do with the TV. And the court said the fact that he was only holding on to the TV until he could get the $150 showed that he did not have the intent to permanently deprive the defendant of the TV in that case. If we had similar facts in this case, then maybe we have a similar result in, in Watts. But I'm saying, if you look at the totality of the situation in this case, when you look at the brutality of it, the knife point, everything involved, there was enough there for the judge to send it to the jury for them to make that decision. All right, thank you, Your Honors. If there's no other questions on issue two, I move to issue three. Uh, the third issue is whether the trial court erred when it instructed the jury on misdemeanor larceny. The defendant did not object to this at trial, and so he's waived his right for appeal. Um, however, the defendant has asked his court to review a plain error. Um, plain error means this error is so fundamental that it amounts to a miscarriage of justice or probably resulted in the jury reaching a different verdict. I will point the court to the case State B. Sanders that I included in my memorandum of additional authority. In that case, the, all right, so in this case, the defendant never asked for an instruction or anything. In Sanders, there was an oral request for instructions and um, the court denied giving those instructions. Uh, th this court in Sanders said that the substance of defendant's request for additional jurors in jury instructions falls within the scope of plain error. However, defendant failed to include the content and substance of the instruction on the record of appeal. Therefore, this court was unable to consider the basis for his request under plain error. So I'll put that before the court. But if the court in its discretion uh, would like to review this case under plain error, uh, it doesn't reach to that level. Um, a jury instruction will be held sufficient if it presents the law of the case in such a manner as to leave no reason, reasonable cause to believe the jury was misled or misinformed. The party asserting the error bears the burden of showing that the jury was misled or, mis or the verdict was affected by the instruction. Um, as it pertains to intent to permanently deprive, the trial court instructed the jury uh, that the state must prove that at the time defendant took Mr. Perry's truck, he intended to permanently deprive Mr. Perry's use of it permanently. The terms used by the trial court followed uh, case law as to the elements of the intent to deprive. 
the terms used by a trial court are common enough to be understood by jurors to, uh, for them to understand the meaning of the English words used. I, I said see Jenkins, State v. Jenkins, because in that case the defendant wanted certain terms in a statute to be f defined, like lewd, and there were different other, there, there were different terms. And this court said that the instruction was not necessary because there's a common enough uh, words used that the jury could have understood the meaning. Um, Would you, do you agree that had a temporary deprivation instruction been requested, properly requested in this case, that the trial court would have had a duty to give that instruction? So Watts says it should be included where the factual situation arises as to the question to, of intent to permanently deprive. I think we don't have that evidence in this case. Um, in Watts, as I said previously, there was evidence at the time of the taking, there was a discussion, I'm taking the TV for the $150. Therefore, they're saying the instruction was necessary. Here, there is no factual situation to support that at the time of the taking, defendant only intended to temporarily deprive. But sort of flipping the, the, the question on its head, if in fact, you know, if, if the evidence is the, the truck was returned relatively shortly um, thereafter, isn't that some evidence on the other side that maybe there was not an intent to permanently deprive? And again, I, so why, why wouldn't that issue be a jury question? Well, I would say, Your Honor, that that evidence doesn't go to the intent at the time of the taking. It, it shows that there was a change of, of it might, heart. It, there might have been a change of heart, or maybe right. there was the intent all along. But, but why can it? Why could the jury not? Why don't we leave it to the jury to make one of those two inferences from the evidence before it? I, I just. I don't think the evidence would support the fact that there was an intent to temporarily deprive at this, at, from the total circumstances of the case. So I don't think I don't think the jury instruction for temporary deprivation is necessary in this case or warranted in this case. I don't think the facts of this case are similar to Watts, or would suggest that at the time of the taking, defendant had the intent to only permit to deprive or only go for 30 minutes. Um, so I don't think the jury instruction uh, is necessary in this case or warranted for that fact. So the, the trial court correctly instructed the jury on the charge of larceny. There was nothing in the record to show the jury was misled or misinformed. The defendant received a fair trial and the state asks that this court affirm defendant's convictions and uphold the trial court's ruling. The court has no further questions. I'll step down. Thank, Thank you. The state in its arguments on issues two and three seems to ask this court to find and hold that absent some affirmative evidence of uh, an, a temporary intention in taking an object, that there be a presumption of an intent to permanently deprive. I think that flies in the face of the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof. Um, the concept 
that the return of the truck doesn't provide at least some evidence of an intention to deprive only temporarily uh, is completely in contrast to the, the court's repeated holding that the abandonment of the property gives rise to an inference of an intent to permanently deprive. What somebody ultimately does with the property, what they, how they you know, absolve themselves of having the property, absolutely provides evidence, um, at a minimum some evidence, of the initial intention of the person in taking the item. And particularly when the item is a motor vehicle, there is such a common temporary purpose for taking a motor vehicle that we have an entire crime dedicated to it, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. And so in this factual scenario, uh, we have a motor vehicle that was returned a short while later. Um, certainly, that is at least some evidence, and I would argue um, that there is uh, no affirmative evidence from the state, direct or circumstantial, of any intention to permanently deprive. Um, I will also point out that the state has cited no case, and I have found no case, in which a motor vehicle is completely returned to an owner and a larceny conviction has been found to be sufficient. I will also similarly point out that there are no cases finding that to be insufficient. Those cases are not reaching this court. And I think that is something to consider uh, because I would posture that either judges or juries are finding a lack of an intention to permanently deprive in that circumstance. Uh, returning to issue number one. Before you go back to issue one, can I ask, just to be clear, I understood from your opening brief that they're really, on your, in your discussions on issue two, because the competent and incompetent evidence was so intertwined that there really wasn't a curative instruction. And then today I understood you broke out our analysis a little bit in, in more detail to me about look at the, when the curative instruction was given, the intertwined, and then the content. Mm -hmm. So my question is what content, assuming that we don't find a problem with the time lapse between the incompetent evidence and the curative instruction, and that they aren't problematically intertwined, what would have been a proper curative instruction? Um, well, I, I am happy to address that question, though I do think all three of these things are very intertwined with each other. Um, but this particular curative instruction, and I, I apologize, I am going to read it again because it was a focus of a lot of discussion uh, when the state was arguing. Uh, the motion to suppress the identification of the defendant is granted. I am instructing ladies and gentlemen of the jury that you are to disregard totally and give no weight to the last witness's identification of the defendant, that being Mr. Perry. Is that understood? You are to strike it entirely. Uh, the reason that I say that this is an insufficient curative instruction uh, is because it leaves open the question as to whether or not it is simply the identification that was the subject of the jury being sent out of the room for four hours, or if it is every identification, and if that uh, crosses into not just the direct identifications, but also referencing Mr. Spera as being the perpetrator of this crime in the conversational aspect of his testimony. Um, it doesn't address any of that. Um, and so um, in Hunt, um, that was a case in which the prosecutor asked, I believe it was three questions um, that elicited um, that elicited a police record about the defendant. Um, initially, the objection was overruled. 
the next morning, the judge came back. There was a motion for mistrial. The judge uh, denied the motion for mistrial, but did decide to withdraw that evidence. But the, there was sort of a generalization given about there were some improper questions asked. They referenced this. You're not to consider those. I'm, you know, that was not proper for you. This is very similar to the instruction that was given there, where it's insufficient to properly identify exactly what the, uh, the evidence was that needs to be sort of sectioned off and disregarded by the jury. Though I will also say, I don't know under this set of circumstances that you can craft a curative instruction that adequately does that because of how the identification of Mr. Spera was woven throughout this entire direct testimony. Um, it was, the testimony was given in a way in which uh, the, the victim talked about Mr. Spera the whole time. It was either Mr. Spera or him. He didn't say the perpetrator, he didn't say the robber, he didn't, he just referred to it as the defendant. Um, and at this point in the trial, with the evidence that had been given, the, the jury was completely unaware of the discrepancy even in the, the initial description and Mr. Spera. And so this was laying this foundation for the jury uh, in a way that I don't know that any instruction could have adequately allowed them to section it off and disregard it. In closing, the entire foundation of this case was built with incompetent, highly persuasive testimony from the victim of the crime. After a four-hour delay, a six-line curative instruction, the jury was expected to just separate out and erase from their minds that the robber had been called John Spera for the entirety of the trial so far. Given that the only other evidence connecting Mr. Spera to this event was the biased and self-interested testimony of the co-defendant, the, and the description was so far off from Mr. Spera, there was no way for him to have a fair trial. We request a new trial. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to both counsel for uh, the excellent arguments and, uh, and briefing in this case. We appreciate it. The, uh, the case will be submitted. So thank you. Um, we'll take a few moments to, to switch over uh, to our second case. Um, Um, and we'll we'll sort of sit at ease here for a few minutes while we uh, switch over the recording equipment. And so, thank you both.